All right. Good morning again. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to see you turning your Bibles to Joshua 5. While you're doing that, I have to fix an announcement that was made earlier. Our business meeting is at 5 o'clock, not 5.30. We're going to get you out of here even earlier. Our business meeting is at 5 o'clock, so please make that change, not at 5.30. Recap, we have the nation of Israel being led by Joshua, who was Moses' replacement. They have just crossed on dry ground, right? Dry ground. They have crossed the Jordan River. Two million plus people. They've crossed over. They are on the other side, if you remember last week's sermon. And they are going to be camping very close to their very first obstacle a great obstacle, and this obstacle is identified as Jericho. So that's where we're at. I would like you to look at Joshua 5. Let's start in verse 1 together. Here is the state of things, everybody. <clears throat> as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So they are on the western side of the Jordan. They have crossed over. The kings of the Amorites on this western side are terrified because of what has happened. They were already scared because of 40 years prior crossing the Red Sea. Now, this fear is alive and it's real once again. So you also have the kings by the sea. So the land of Canaan is bordered by the Mediterranean Sea. That's what they're talking about. So I would just like to say all the kings are in terror right now, all of them. So this is what's happening. God himself has set the stage for this great campaign. All right? That's underway. He set the stage. He was the reason that the inhabitants of Canaan's hearts are melting away. He is the reason that there is no longer any spirit left in them. But before Joshua and the nation of Israel started on this path to conquering Canaan, they demonstrated their obedience to him in other ways. And these things are very important for you and me today to recognize. The reason is because God's people were setting themselves apart from all the inhabitants of Canaan, all those that surrounded them. And we're going to see this here in the act of circumcision and the celebration of Passover. So in this chapter, and I'm just going to talk to you about it, we have circumcision. Now Joshua was told to make flint knives to perform the circumcision a second time. This is meaning that this is a new generation who were never circumcised during their time in the wilderness. Those who were born during the time of the great exodus. That's who we're looking at the second time. Flint knives for this new generation. See, it would be the children of those who died in the wilderness because of disobedience. It would be the children of those who would never enter the promised land. It would be the children of those who perished um, excuse me, who perished, who were being circumcised. It's the children. 
Now, this was an act of covenant-making. This was an act of covenant-making that began with Abraham, all the way back to Abraham. It began with God, and of course, you know the story with Abraham. So Israel would once again become children of Abraham, meaning they'd be heirs to the promised land. This rite was signifying that their dedication and their consecration to the living God. Remember, Joshua said, all these other gods that these other people were worshiping are dead. We serve a living God. And this living God, right here, they are being consecrated to. They are being dedicated to. It was a sign of the covenant made by God to his people. Now, I'm going to tell you from a military standpoint, this was a crazy move. This was a foolish move. See, their camp was only about a mile or two. I know Gilgal, today, you can see a great distance. But where they camped, right there on the edge, they were only a mile or two away from Jericho, people. This was not a smart move. Let me tell you why. A blaze, uh, my, my life group understands this. Going back to Jacob, he had 12 sons. The 12 sons, of course, make up the 12 tribes of the great exodus that we're talking about right now. But he also had a daughter named Dinah. Now, Dinah was abducted, and Dinah was raped by a man named Shechem. Okay, of course, Jacob and the brothers were pretty mad, you can imagine. Shechem loved this woman, wanted to possess her, wanted her badly, came to them. And this is all in Genesis 34, by the way, Genesis 34. He came to them and wanted to make things right. So the deal was if Shechem and his whole clan to win the approval of Jacob and his brothers, Shechem and his whole clan would need to be circumcised. So they were. We'll share in their flocks. We'll share in their wealth. We'll become family. Well, here's what happened. On the third day, while they were recovering, very sore, you can only imagine, very sore, uh, Simeon and Levi, two sons of Jacob, took their swords and killed every single male. That's a strategy right there. They killed every single male. There was nothing they could do because they were in recovery. They couldn't fight back. So I tell you this story because look at the vulnerability of the men in their recovery. And in our text, the Bible tells us until they were healed. They were circumcised and they couldn't move on until they were healed. There was a healing process. This is why from a military standpoint, this was a crazy thing to do. Are you insane? But they did it. Because they were under the watchful eye of God and under his watchful eye. This was an extraordinarily awesome thing to do. They were being consecrated. They were being set apart. Now, it talks about the reproach being rolled away. Gilgal means circle. So anything round or circle, as you can see, is going to be able to roll. Right? That's why this reproach is being rolled away. It was the disgrace of Egypt that's being rolled away. See, this new generation had followed the covenant. They had been circumcised. They were being consecrated to God. Now they could enter the promised land and leave behind the disgrace of their parents who died in the wilderness. The reproach was rolled away. So not only were they faithful in being consecrated through circumcision and the reproach being rolled away, that disgrace is now gone, they are going to celebrate and keep the Passover. This is important. Now listen, they observed, they celebrated the Passover. In Exodus 13, it tells them, they were commanded, if you will, 
that to keep the, celebra- keep the Passover, to celebrate the Passover when they arrived in the promised land. So here they are again, being obedient to the things of God, these small things. Not this great obstacle in front of them. They're being obedient to God in these small things. So even celebrating Passover in such a short distance from Jericho was not a very good strategic move. They were vulnerable. But in doing so, they trusted and obeyed. You know that hymn, Trust and Obey? They trusted and they obeyed God. And I tell you, by doing that, they inherited the covenantal promises and the blessings that the earlier generation had received when they left Egypt. Now, they, this was being bestowed upon them. Very important. After the Passover, they ate of the land. I told you about this last week about the manna, that the manna would cease. They ate of the produce of the land. Everybody look at Joshua 5.12. Go down to Joshua 5.12, same chapter. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The provisions of God, church family, the provisions of God in his love and in his care is a miraculous thing to take in. And there's a point for me going over chapter 5 like I'm doing. I'm building up to it. What's happening here is this is pointing to a new life in keeping with God's historic acts of redemption. All the things, folks, that led up to their freedom from Egypt. If we go back, it was that last, remember the Passover? The Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, the crossing of the Jordan River, and they're entering the promised land. We see all these historic, redemptive acts under God's watchful eye. All of this was promised. God is faithful in fulfilling his promises. Today, you, me, we can see this kind of new life in Jesus, whose death and resurrection brought about new life. They're entering into a new life under that covenant. We're under a covenant of grace. That's what we live under. And our new covenant is all because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He brings us newness of life. Look at verse 13. Oh, this is powerful, folks. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? What an answer was given. No. No to both. Joshua probably was expecting something a little different. I think maybe we were too. This man was the commander of the army of the Lord. And this made me think. I began to think deep about this. Regarding Joshua's question, are you on our side or are you on their side? Neither. 
I am on the Lord's side. And this is the side in which Joshua realized he was on. When you look at the way he, he fell on his face and worshiped, right? He fell on his faith and he, face and he asked, what does the Lord say to his servant? You see Joshua now not saying this side or that side, but God's side. That is the other side. Whose side are you on? How many times have we asked God, God, are you on my side? God, how come, how come these people are prospering? They're evil. Are you on their side? Whose side are you on, God? No. He's on his side. And we see that in the text. You know, we can see here something really cool, too. Just like Moses at the burning bush, Joshua is told to remove his sandals because the place where he was standing was holy. I love this. See, God promised his presence, right? And Joshua 1, he says to him all the time, I will be with you. I will be with you. And he delivered on that promise, and he's still delivering on that promise as we see this captain of the guard appearing. Joshua is receiving encouragement and he's receiving further assistance of divine support through the presence of God standing before him. Right before this campaign begins, he comes face to face with the presence of God. He's facing a huge obstacle. You see the picture I put in the, on the bulletin. A double-walled city. They're shut in. They're locked up. They're facing a huge obstacle. But just to know that God's army was present and ready, it's, it's paramount. But you got to understand something. In this text, Joshua seems to be by himself. He may have had men with him. But he is surveying the land. He's looking, going, I'm sure going, well, we're here, God. What do we do now? This, what do I do with this? He's surveying, he's looking, and all of a sudden he looks up and the captain of the Lord's army. Hey, you got a sword drawn. Are you on my side or are you on their side? I'm on neither side, brother. I'm on God's side, and that's where you need to be. And we see Joshua falling into line in obedience, falling into God's side. It was a just masterful planning on God's part. There's a thing called theophany. Theophany is the visible manifestation of God. Like, for instance, the fire in the burning bush. Uh, on, 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 Mount, on the Mount Sinai, where he passed Moses. Um, some people think the uh, uh, angel of the Lord at different times throughout Scripture. A theophany is a visible manifestation, walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. There's also something called a Christophany, which is the pre-incarnate Christ. Folks, Christ has always been. He didn't just appear when he came into this world. He's eternal. He's always been. And a lot of people believe in Christophany, that this angel of the Lord was actually Jesus. A lot of people believe that Jesus was the one wrestling with Jacob. A lot of people believe that Jesus was the one walking in the garden, Christophany. I can't tell you if it was the angel of the Lord and the theophany or if it was Christ and Christophany. I can tell you, though, that the presence of God was there. The presence of God was there, and they were encouraging, encouraging Joshua. So Joshua and the nation of Israel in which he led, were demonstrating their trust in God and their obedience to God in their actions. In chapter 5, that's what we see. They're building up, getting ready to take this, this, this huge uh, uh, walled city. 
but they're being obedient to the things in chapter 5. Now, what is striking to me is that before Joshua attacks, he asks the Lord what to do. The commander of the army, I love this line, the commander of the army of the Lord says this, now I have come. That's strong. Now I have come. You're going to see what God's going to do for you. Now I have come. And in saying that, Joshua's response was to worship and ask, what does my Lord say to my servant? What do you have for me? I don't know what to do. God, what do I do? And it's, very, it's most likely, I believe it is most likely, the commander in this text who was given the instructions that we're about to read in chapter 6 on how to take Jericho. I believe that's where the instructions come from. But let me give you a formula before we jump to chapter 6. Here's my formula. We are all given faith. It is freely given because of grace. Everybody in this room has an established belief system. You have God-given faith. From that faith is where trust comes into play. You trust in the one who's given you that faith. You trust in the one who has instilled that faith. In that trust and the actions of when you trust who's given you that faith, you become obedient. This is the formula. Now, I understand we can interchange faith and trust. I get it. They're inseparable in this case, too. They're inseparable. But what I'm saying is our belief system, our instilled God-given faith, out of that stems trust. We begin to trust more and more because of that faith. And in that trust, in those actions, we find obedience. That is the formula for victory. That is a formula for a successful Christian walk. And this is what's about to happen. We needed this formula as we go into chapter 6, because this is going to be a huge undertaking. Everybody look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow their trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. We know this story from Sunday school way back. This is the got to be the worst strategic move in the history of war. If I gathered captains and generals and said, come here, look at this strategic plan we got put together. We're going to conquer that city by walking around it and saying nothing. What do you think about that? And on the seventh day, we're going to yell really loud. Have you ever thought about this story like that? This is a crazy plan. Any captain or general worth the weight would say, listen, we need to wait them out. We're going to starve them. We're going to starve them. Or let's tunnel in. Let's begin a tunnel. Let's set fire to a particular part of it. Or let's get a bunch of earth and, and let's make this earthen embankment. Let's make a ramp. There'd be great casualties to all those, but they got to be better than walking around a city doing nothing. But as we see in our text, Joshua follows instructions and he follows them flawlessly. What does he do? He gives instructions to the armed men. He instructs the priests who have the trumpets. He instructs those carrying the Ark of the Covenant. He instructs the people. Each had their assigned task. He instructs them all just as he was given the instructions from the commander of the Lord's army. 
So here's our strategic plan. Foolish, crazy, and insane. I love it. Look at verse 15. On the seventh day after they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times, it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown their trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Rahab, remember the story of Rahab? Rahab and her family are going to be spared according to the oath. She kept her into the deal. Now they're going to keep their end of the deal. She and her family will be saved. The silver, the gold, and the bronze, and the iron, that will be saved. That's going to be put into the treasury of the Lord. Everything else that has breath of life, folks, was devoted to destruction and the city to be burned. Every single thing. Look at verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all of it, the city, to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. The text tells us that the walls fell down flat. If you research that word flat in the context in which it's written, it means to fall beneath itself, under itself, meaning it is creating a ramp. If you look at the wall, you have a retaining wall here, guys. On that retaining wall is the next level. Then you have an earthen embankment. That's where Rahab's house is. Then you have another wall. It's huge. So you've got your stone retaining wall. You've got your mud brick wall. You've got another mud brick wall. When these fall beneath themselves and under, they create a ramp. They fell right over that retaining wall. Because the Bible tells us what? They went up. The men, the fighting men, they went up because the way the rocks fell, they created a ramp. We have archaeological evidence of that. The people went up. All the people. All the people and the animals were destroyed. Rahab, again, her and her family were saved. They were taken out of safety. They were placed outside the camp following the oath. That was done. Look at 24. Chapter 6, verse 24. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Okay, so archaeologically speaking, you have your non-believing archaeologists and you have your believing archaeologists. Folks, with technology today, now back in the 70s, 60s and 70s was a little different. Um, I, even, I even have a book that says this was Jericho wasn't real. Um, but we now know it is. They will tell you, boom, here's the site of Jericho, done. Non-believing, believing archaeologists, here's the site. You can't argue that. We found it. In that site, they have discovered, you know, if you did a big cake, I love this illustration, a big cake, and let's say it's all vanilla and you made one layer of chocolate. Cakes are made of layers, aren't they, if you do it right? So I got all this vanilla cake, but you see this chocolate. They found the scarred, they found the burned area of, our, uh, of, this, of this city. 
They found the rocks that had fallen over. They discovered that. They just got the ramp. They found the burned area. They, do you remember in uh, last sermon, I told you when they crossed the Jordan that the banks had flooded over? Those flooding banks were a sign of the harvest, the, the harvest time. So not only did they cross during flood stage, the people of Jericho had harvested a lot of barley, a lot of wheat, a lot of grain, and they had stored it. How do we know that they had so much food? Because jar after jar after jar of burnt barley has been discovered in that fire level of that archaeological dig. The people that argue it, you know, you got your flat earthers that say, hey, the earth's flat, right? It's not round. I mean, come on, we got men that say they're women and women that say they're men today, right? People are crazy. So you got people that go, that's not Jericho. There was one particular archaeologist said, listen, there was not this particular uh, uh, type of pottery. We didn't find this type of pottery in this layer. So therefore, no one lived during this time. They're like looking at these little scrapings of bark instead of seeing the whole forest. But we have all this other evidence. What about this evidence? The reason I bring this up, guys, is the discovery of Jericho validates and verifies Scripture. Do you know this is the oldest book? This is the oldest book in record that talks about Jericho. There are books that discuss Jericho now, but if you go back to the oldest resource, it is the Bible, which validates, once again, God's word is absolutely true. So when we say people crossed the Jordan and the people uh, yelled and the walls of Jericho fell, you can take that to the bank, it's real. You can take that to the bank. So archeological discoveries has proved the battle of Jericho was real. And what happened, happened. I just had to say that because the Bible records it first. There are archaeological, uh, archaeologists today that will argue, come on, you're always going to have them. They don't want you to be right. But the truth is, the evidence, if we were in the court of law, they'd say, yes, this happened. I just wanted to share that with you. So look at verse 26. It's important to share that because where we're going. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, saying, Cursed before the Lord, be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Now, I bring this verse up in this text for this reason. They're going to put it up on the board for you. 1 Kings 16.34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun, excuse me, the son of Nun. Judgment was placed on Jericho. If you build, you're going to lose your son. You're going to lose your firstborn. And it happened. Again, further validating the story, further validating what's happening. Because Jericho has layers and layers. It's many settlements. It was spring-fed. Listen, if, if Israel was going to wait them out, they had a lot of food. It would have been a long time. But there was spring. There was a spring there. They had plenty of food. If you go through the discovery, the levels, you see that many people... Um, had lived in that area. And of course, Heil rebuilt Jericho and he lost two kids. So what we can see here in verse 27, if you look 27, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. My question is this, or no, my statement, excuse me. The Lord was with Joshua because Joshua was with the Lord. Now, this is the reason we have to embrace this story for a second. Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days 
was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. We have to learn from what was written in the former days. This is what we're doing right now. We are taking this fall of Jericho not as just a cool, cool story, not as just a neat story. We have to find the truths because this story teaches great truths about God and our salvation. I want to leave you with this. Not, I've got a little bit more. I'm not going along. But when God's people trusted in what he said to do, when they trusted in what he said to do, and when they acted in obedience to this, what happened? The walls fell down. There is great truth in that for you and I. Hebrews 11.30 says this, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Can you see the relationship here between grace, the grace of God, and our faith and obedience to him? There is a relationship for Joshua and all of Israel. Their obedience was evidence of their faith. What is the evidence of our faith? Are we being obedient to the things that have been written to teach us? Are we trusting in the one who's established our faith? See, just as God said the walls of Jericho would fall, his promises to us are just as certain, folks. They are just as certain as the walls of Jericho falling. But what if the Israelites had said, you know what? We believe you, God. We believe you. And that's the end of it. That is the end of it. We just believe. They did not act on his instructions. They just sat back. Folks, that kind of faith is what we call dead faith. It's the same with us. It's called dead faith, not being able to act. If we truly believe in God, hear this. If we truly believe God, then it will be our absolute desire to obey him. It will be our absolute desire to obey him. Living in a manner worthy of our God-given faith. You ever heard of a trust fall? A trust fall is you have a group of people lower. You're usually elevated. And you kind of trust these people. I wouldn't trust any of you, by the way. Um, and you fall backwards to catch, right? I know y'all let me slip right through your arms. I kid. Trust falls are fun. At the same time, they're scary. See, what's happening here is you have faith in the people that are there. You have faith in the people. You're trusting that they're going to catch you. And in obedience, you fall backwards. Right? That's the equation. That's the formula that we talked about earlier in chapter 5. Faith, trust, and obedience. But we now see that faith, trust, and obedience leads to something when you're caught. Victory. And that's what happened in chapter 6. We see the building of it in chapter 5, and we see the victory. We see the results of faith trust and obedience in chapter 6. Let me give you this illustration. There was a story that had been told of a man who was crossing a desert in the days of the pioneers. Now, he ran into trouble and was dying of thirst, as a lot of them did, dying of thirst. But then he spotted a pump near an abandoned shack. Now, he had no water to prime the pump. You have to prime these pumps. He had no water to prime the pump. But he noticed a jug of water near the pump, with a note attached to it, and it read this, there is just enough water in this jug to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. This well has never gone dry, even in the worst of times. 
pour the water in the top of the pump, pump that handle quickly. After you have had a drink, refill this jug for the next man who is coming. So there's the message. What would the dying man do? What is he going to do? To follow the instructions and to prime the pump without first taking a drink would be an exercise of the kind of biblical belief that the Bible speaks of. What we're talking about in Joshua, it'd be that kind of faith, that kind of trust. See, biblical belief requires that one stakes his life on the truth of the promise. So if the man follows the instructions, he takes the chance of pouring out all of the water and getting none to drink. So what does he do? The pump could fail. So he must trust that the message is right. He must trust that the message is right. He must act in belief without first receiving, and he must trust in the truth of the promise. God's promises are always reliable but they will not help us unless we believe them and act upon them. You have to prime the pump to get the water. We must then trust God enough. You ready for this? We must trust God enough to obey him, even if we have to wait upon him while he goes about fulfilling his promises in his own perfect time. That's the story of Jericho, the battle of Jericho, the fall of Jericho, however you want to place it. That's the story. It's faith. It's acting in trust on that faith. That trust results in obedience. That obedience leads us to victory. Folks, that is the formula for our Christian walk. This story speaks great truths. That's why Paul said, use the former things written and apply them to your lives because we can learn from them. And this is what the fall of Jericho is telling us. Faith, trust, obedience, and victory. When God's people trusted in what he said to do, and they acted upon that in obedience, the walls fell down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just, we praise you for your word. Lord, we praise you for every single verse in this Bible. We know it's for our instruction. You tell us, Father, this is God-breathed. Father, this corrects us. This reproves us. Father, we pray that your word continually impacts us to such a degree, Father, that we have to obey it. Father, let us trust in you fully and wholeheartedly. Let us be obedient to your word, and Father, let us obey what you have commanded us. Just as the Israelites and Joshua listened, listened to your plan, Father, let us be open to what you have to say to us, because we have page after page after page of what you're speaking to us. Father, let us be open to your word. Let it transform our lives. Let it begin to transform us into the image of your son. Father, grow us in every way in Jesus Christ. We know that he's our new life. Father, we want to move from one level to the next. We want to cross the Jordan at every part of our life. We want to cross over and be prepared, Lord. And when obstacles come, when walls that we think we can't conquer come, let us turn to you, Father, in faith trust, obedience, because in that we know you give us the victory. Father, that's my prayer for every Christian here today. That's my prayer, Lord. We need that. We need that in our lives right now. Father God, we love you. We just thank you for all the blessings you bestow upon us, everything you do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.